Eric Bauman likely stole the election for chair of the California Democratic Party. And red alert, siren to Tom Perez, the chair of the national DNC, and the rest of the national party. You better pay attention to this if you want to keep the party together. This is Jonathan Tassini, and this is the Working Life Podcast for June 7th, 2017. Today, I'm going to talk at length to Kimberly Ellis, the progressive candidate for chair of the California Democratic Party, in her first in-depth interview since the vote at the state party convention in California on May 20th. And you will see why I believe, and Kimberly Ellis believes, that she actually won the vote. And from her point of view, she won decisively. Now, Ellis has not conceded the race, as I mentioned in my last podcast, and in fact is challenging the results. On May 30th, Ellis submitted a formal challenge to the election, and she's also challenging the elections and the races for the female vice chair in the California State Party And in many other state parties, there are designated spots by gender for female and male candidates. And also, she's also challenging the secretary election, as well as challenging a majority of the regional director races. Now, why is that? Ellis, as you will hear, believes that Bauman, the insider candidate, the candidate of the establishment, engineered fraudulent votes from phantom proxies to people who did not have the right to vote, to other shenanigans. Now, to cut to the chase, to remind people, because we've talked about this in previous podcasts, the initial results were razor-thin close. Out of almost 3,000 votes cast, there was only a difference of 62 votes separating Bauman and Ellis. The vote total was, and check this out, Bauman got 1,493 votes, that's 1,493, and Ellis got 1,431, that's 1,431. If you're good at math, you know that that's a difference of 62 votes. And here's an important fact for everyone to keep in mind as this saga continues. The vote for the chair of the convention and for the other positions is not a secret ballot. Every ballot can be tracked to its rightful owner, or perhaps in this case, its unrightful owner. When you cast a ballot, your name is recorded on on the ballot and in a database. And so your name is connected to a physical ballot. And here is why I think there is strong evidence that fraudulent and possibly illegal actions took place. Now, unlike too many failed progressive campaigns to capture power, when progressives did not know how the system worked, they didn't bother to study the rules, they didn't do the hard organizing, and they believed that they could just come to a convention or to another election and just yell and demand, unlike all that nonsense, the Ellis forces progressives throughout the state had worked this campaign for many months. They knew the rules. They knew where the votes were. They organized the shit out of this. 
And in many ways, that's what has been exciting and fascinating to watch. And that's why I've spent a fair amount of time on this podcast talking about what's going on in California. I've been talking, in fact, about this race and the progressive organizing efforts to take control of the party for many weeks. In episode 12, way back in January, I reported on the huge sweep of party seats by Bernie Kretz and progressives. They won over 600 seats in elections by assembly districts all across the state. There are 80 assembly districts in California, and there are elections by each of those districts to elect people to the state party. And that gave Ellis, who had already declared that she was running, a massive voter base leading up to the convention. And you will hear the Ellis campaign had already nailed down votes in previous elections at the state central committee levels. That's another level of elections for state party seats. They came to the convention with a sophisticated operation. I saw this with my own eyes. And the elites, the insiders, the people who supported Bauman, by then knew that they were in deep trouble. And likely the only way to win was to steal the vote. And if you add all that up, and you listen to what Kimberly has to say here in the podcast in a few minutes, and you put aside the clear visual spectacle that I witnessed at the convention that the Ellis forces were clearly dominant in numbers with their pink t-shirts. Here is the most glaring evidence about the strong feeling there was election misconduct. Eric Bauman is refusing to have the vote audited by an independent third party. And that was an offer made by the Kimberly Ellis campaign. You know, if you're so sure that you've won fair and square, why would you reject a fair, independent, forensic audit? You wouldn't. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it was all done in the up and up, the election from the beginning. But you don't run and hide. You don't try to cover your tracks and you don't stonewall a simple, fair audit. And you certainly don't have your minions cast shade on the challenge and start chirping about, quote unquote, party unity. Because frankly, unity, party unity, is a hollow idea if it's not built on trust, honesty, and transparency. Now, I get why these people are fucking scared, the insiders. Their power is being taken away. Here's a fact. The Progressive Caucus, now led by Karen Bernal, who I talked in the podcast with extensively two weeks ago, is by far the largest caucus in the party. Progressives can own the state party. And progressives can kick the insiders, the elites, to the curb. And those elites, those insiders, they know it. Now, my first words just a minute or two ago sent out a warning to the National Democratic Party. And they better listen to this. They have got to pay attention to what just happened at the California State Convention and make it right. 
they need to make sure fairness prevails. Because if they don't, and if the California Democratic Party is run by a chair who stole an election, and at the very least leaves a cloud of suspicion and distrust hanging over the whole process, this could bring down the party's entire election efforts nationwide in 2018, all across the nation. And why is that? Here's a practical reason. You don't win back the House of Representatives in 2018 without winning big in California. And especially because at least seven House seats currently held by Republicans are winnable just in California. I can promise you that if there isn't an open, transparent resolution of this race, a lot of people, activists that the party needs, are just going to sit on their hands. And worse, many of them will say, you see, this is exactly what we've been saying about the Democratic Party. Fuck them. Let's not forget that there's still the putrid smell of the turds dropped all over the party by the corrupt Debbie Wasserman Schultz, who aside from being thoroughly incompetent, and I say incompetent because the party under her leadership at the National DNC, and I use the term quote-unquote leadership very loosely when talking about her disastrous tenure, which lost elections all over the country and is now at the weakest point in a generation— She rigged the presidential primaries. There's no doubt about that. And she had to be forced out by the progressive forces just before the convention last year. The party still has a long way to go to convince many people that the party does its business fairly, that it is an open place for progressives. Of course, everyone understands the danger posed by the ignoramus, the bigot in the White House, but no matter how many road trips Tom Perez does, and these have been lots of public relation trips, there has to be real concrete signs to activists everywhere that the party will play by the rules. And so this is why this challenge, this election, this struggle over the chairship of the California State Democratic Party matters a lot. Now, Kimberly has lived in California for 20 years. I wanted to give you just a couple of facts before opening up the conversation with her. She was the first African-American executive director in Emerge America's national network, which does a lot to bring about and train and promote new leaders. She took over the California chapter in 2010. And in that period, more than half of Emerge California's 400 alumni, 56% of whom were women of color, more than half of them rose to elected or appointed office. And I wanted to give my listeners a sense of who Kimberly is and what her vision is as we start the conversation before we get into the nitty-gritty of the election challenge, which I know is the juicy part that everybody's waiting for. So that's where we start. And Kimberly, before we dive right into the convention and some of the political 
uh, machinations around this and what's going on, the convention and the challenge to the election. I want to talk a little bit about you. And one of the things that struck me in reading the bio that you have on your website is what you told about your childhood, which is that you are the daughter of a career military officer and you traveled across the country in your childhood and you attended nine schools in six different states and two countries. And what struck me about this immediately was what popped into my mind. I wonder if that experience um, in some way was very formative to you as a political organizer, because first of all, you lived around the military culture, which is perhaps different than, let's say, San Francisco or New York City, and in a way, potentially different in the political views of many people in the military, maybe certainly in certain parts of the country. And second, you had to cope with different kinds of people in these different states. You had to learn how to talk to people. Is that a fair kind of observation? Absolutely. I think that uh, for me, growing up as a military kid was probably one of the most incredibly rewarding experiences um, in my life. Um, the ability to uh, learn and experience different cultures, uh, different people, um, was, I think, uh, in many ways, um, the best thing um, about growing up as a military kid and really helped to contribute to um, my ability to reach across different aisles, um, connect with uh, people from different backgrounds um, in a way that was meaningful uh, and on a human level. And particularly when you're a young person, a child when you have to attend so many different schools. I mean, I know that as a kid, I attended one different school. And the first thing you do on the first day when you're walking in, you feel a little bit out of place. You feel like this foreign object. You have to adjust. You have to learn who this these new social circles. And so I, I sense from talking to you and seeing how you operate that that in some way forced you to be a good listener to sort of judge where people are coming from in a way. Absolutely. And I think the other thing that it taught me as well, which I think is just a, a valuable life lesson, is that, um, you know, it's, it's, um, it's up to you as a person to sort of determine uh, your outlook on situations. And so as opposed to looking at walking into a new school as a challenge, um, look at it as an opportunity to make new friends, to um, have a new experience. And so having a positive uh, outlook, a sort of glass half full kind of perspective, um, generally in life, um, I think is something that I learned um, because of those experiences of having to pick up and move around and drop into new places literally uh, every couple years. And particularly as a child, I mean, as a kid, as I said, adults, we have, we can adjust a little bit better. We have pr potentially better coping skills. But as a child, you really have to learn those things pretty quickly. Otherwise, you're going to be on the outside and in some way shun. The, the pressure's even more so. Yeah, I, I, would, I would actually say it, it's, it's easier in some ways. I think that as kids, uh, as children, we know that it's, um, for example, easier to learn a new language um, when you're the younger that you are. True, true. Um, and so I think that just, just by being young and open and having uh, sort of a mind that is 
sort of a sponge and that is, um, you know, uh, ready to experience new things without judgment or, um, you know, sort of viewing them negatively, I think was, was an advantage. And so as a kid, you know, I uh, looked at the opportunity to go to new places and um, move around as, um, as a great opportunity to make new friends. I mean, I was a brownie and a Girl Scout growing up, and so uh, I remember the song mm-hmm. that we used to sing, which was, you know, make new friends but keep the old. One is silver and the other is gold. And so that's the sort of mantra that I took with me along our travels as a child, which was this is a, a making new friends, um, but I'm going to keep the old ones. And so for me, it was it was the adventure of a lifetime, and I really enjoyed it. Well, it certainly made built you and made you interested, obviously, in political organizing. Was there one particular thing that made you a political animal in, in a way and someone that really got you fired up to jump into politics? Or was this just a gradual evolution from school and onwards? Or was there one life change that happened to you, something that ignited you? Yeah, absolutely. And I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, I was in third grade, and um, I happened to have the incredible experience of attending elementary school um, in those years at the Presidio in San Francisco. A beautiful place, uh, And I yeah. remember beautiful place to, uh, to, to grow up. And um, third grade, we had um, an assignment to find a political figure that was our hero or that we wanted to do a report on, and, and we had to give a speech on it. Um, and I did research, and I landed on Shirley Chisholm. Uh, uh. And I um, researched her life and the history and who she was, and um, immediately um, uh, caught the bug. And, and I remember saying to myself, I want to be just like her when I grow up. I want to be a fighter for justice and for fairness. And um, just, you know, um, thinking of her as such a revolutionary trailblazer, not just for women, not just for, for black women and black black people, but for all people and for what, it, what was right and just in this world. And it was um, after that third grade um, speech that I had to give on Shirley Chisholm that I um, I caught the bug and I uh, ran for uh, for off for class rep uh, if you would uh, in third grade and I lost that election and I learned a lot uh, not the least of which was that um, bribery doesn't really work um, in uh, in third grade that the kids will take your bubble gum and take your candy and still not vote for you. Um, a, but, a, le- uh, a, le- a lesson that <laughs> a lesson that carried you to this very day, but we'll get to that in a that, moment. <laughs> yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and then I, you know, I ran again in fourth grade for for class rep and 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 won and 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 continued to serve as class rep all the way up through um, high school. In high school, I was. Um, on the beautiful island of Puerto Rico, which, again, another incredible um, experience. And I was um, class president, student, gover- student government president uh, in high school in Puerto Rico. Uh, graduated, went on to uh, undergrad at Jacksonville University in Florida. Also continued to be um, engaged in politics uh, through student government. But I think what was so... Um, interesting, and it was something that I didn't even really think about until, um, really until I started this journey, and that was that even though I was very active um, in terms of um, uh, student government on the academic side and in school, because my father was an officer in the military, we were not allowed to be politically active. Um, And so we 
uh, never had any conversations around our dinner table about politics, right. ever, not one. And so when I graduated from college, you know, having spent an entire, you know, um, my entire childhood sort of being active and engaged civically and politically, because we never had those conversations around our dinner table at home, when I graduated from college, I did not know how to transfer those skills and my activism into the real world. And so I fumbled around for many years, really, um, you know, with this itch that I had, and I couldn't scratch it, and I didn't know how to. Um, and it really wasn't until I stumbled upon the Emerge California program mm -hmm. that um, I learned about this whole other world um, and a way to um, to plug into politics. And um, going through that program really was a life-changing experience for me because it not only demystified the process, but it plugged me in and gave me access and tangible skills to connect the dots as to how to um, get involved in politics um, and, and eventually get a seat at the decision-making table. Now, I want to circle back on two things first. And the, the first thing I want to do is for our listeners, some people really don't know who Shirley Chisholm was. She was a great African-American leader in the Congress. That She came from New York, actually, the 12th Congressional District, and served mostly in the 70s and 80s. She, I think she was elected just before the 1970 election. And here's the most important thing that I think is, for, is forgotten about her. She was actually the first black candidate to run for a major party nomination for president. Right. We often forget about 1972. That was when George McGovern eventually was nominated to be the Democratic nominee. But she was a candidate for president. And it's sad to me that that was often obscured when Barack Obama ran. But she was quite a force back then. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think in, in, in many respects, ahead of her time. Absolutely, yes. Um. <laughs> Both as a woman as an as and as an African-American woman in Congress. Absolutely. Both of those things. Absolutely, like, yeah. So, and then to your point about it, politics at home, so w w you didn't discuss this at the dinner table. Was that because the w your father didn't want conflict or because there was a desire to just stay away from that because that was too spicy or something that he was not comfortable with? You know, I think, in all honesty, a big part of it was that my dad just wasn't there a lot. Um, he was oftentimes, um, you know, what they call PCS, right, uh, out of state or out of country uh, on duty, uh, right. serving uh, all around. And so there was that part. Um, and I think also, um, you know, just because that wasn't, uh, that wasn't something that the officers uh, did or that the, you know, the family of officers did, that wasn't uh, sort of, you know, um, um, kosher, yeah, right, for, yeah. for, for them to do. And, again, you know, you think about the time, you know, when, when this was happening. I was born in the mid-'70s, and so 80s and 90s. Um, my father was oftentimes the only black um, officer mm -hmm. uh, amongst his colleagues. Mm -hmm. Many times I was the only black kid, you know, at, you know, the officers' club at the, you know, various activities and events that we would be going to. And so I think that, you know, there was a lot of pressure on him as well to sort of, you know, be a good, you know, uh, officer and make sure that his family as well was sort of living up to the standards, if you will, quote unquote, of being, you know, a good upstanding uh, officer. So there were a lot of things that I think played into it. But um, at the end of the day, I think that um, there was a 
you know, there were roles, right? Not not too dissimilar to sort of, you know, the you know the state of the world today. There were roles that were to be played, and and and, and we played those roles. And so to edge now and move forward to kind of begin to edge into this fight over the chairship of the Democratic State Party. What convinced you and what made you do this madness thing to disrupt your life, <laughs> lose God knows how many hours of sleep and, uh, you know, the usual kinds of things that goes to campaigning? What possessed you to do this? I'm sure your family asks you this all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let me tell you, when, when, um, when I was first approached and asked, to consider running for uh, for this, uh, it was actually Hillary Crosby, uh, who's the former controller of the CDP, and Karen Weinstein, uh, who approached me at an Emerge California uh, event, uh, and um, you know said, "Hey, we think we think you should consider running to be the chair of our party." And this was in December of 2014. Ah, that far back. Wow. And very yeah. yes, long time ago. And I looked at them both, and I said, I think you two are drunk. <laughs> and, uh, and they both sort of laughed and, and looked, and they said, no, we're not. And I said, well, if you're not drunk, then you're crazy. Um, that's a preposterous idea, and I'm not interested, and I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and, um, and they said, you know, well, why not? And I said, well, well because, A, you know, we already know who's, gonna be, who's already running for it. Uh, he's already made it very clear that that is his seat, and he's running, and nobody better run against him. And I said, and secondly... You know, the I love John Burden. He's fantastic and, and, and great. But, you know, when I see him at convention and at e-board meetings, he doesn't look very happy. And so whatever it is that the chair does, it doesn't seem like it's very fun. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not interested in doing a job that, that I don't have a lot of fun at. Well, I think he's partly a grump in general. I, and I say that you, you don't have to, you can stay neutral on this, but he just strikes me as a grumpy person overall. But okay, so... <laughs> But that makes sense. You don't um, want... Yes, I'm here. Yeah, so so I said, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not interested. And they said, well, don't say no just yet. You know, just think about it. And I said, okay, I'll think about it, but the answer will still be no. And I left that conversation, and I didn't think anything else of it um, until a couple of weeks later. Mm-hmm. Um, it was during the holiday season, December of 2014, and I and I found myself, you know, thinking about it. And I called them back up, I call, and I said, let's go, you know, let's go have lunch. And so we got together a couple weeks later in January of 2015, and I said, listen, I said, I'm really flattered that you all would think that I would, you know, be a great candidate for this, but whatever it is, it feels really big, and I'm, I'm not sure that it's something that I would be interested in. doesn't sound like a lot of fun. Um, and, um, you know, thank you, but no thank you. And... Um, and they continue to say, we really think that you should consider it. And I said, well, okay, well, what is it that the chair actually does? And they went through, they said, there's really only three things. The chair fundraises to run the organization. They serve as the official spokesperson for all California Democrats. And they sort of serve as the cheerleader in chief. They help to, you know, champion and advance our collective agenda of getting more Democrats elected. And I said, okay, well, if those are the things that the chair could do or has to do, what are some of the things that the chair could do? And they said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, could the chair of the party um, really focus and hone in on um, helping to groom the next generation of political leadership, making sure that it actually looks like California, including women and people of color and millennials? Um, And she said, sure, if that's what the chair wanted to do. And I said, well, could the chair 
um, really prioritize investing time, energy, money, and resources in our purple counties, in our red counties, and in our rural counties, and not just our safe blue counties. Could the chair do that? And she said, well, yeah, if that's something you wanted to do, sure. And I said, well, finally, could the chair use their bully pulpit and the platform that comes with being the chair to hold to account our Democratic elected officials and make sure that they are continuing to be the champions for progressive legislation and making sure that California continues to lead uh, on, on policy? And she said, well, yeah, you probably wouldn't make a lot of friends that way, but certainly if that's what you wanted to do, you know, you could do. And I said, okay, well, I'm interested in continuing the conversation. And it really was over the course of about eight or nine months uh, that I really took the time to learn about the party, about the inner workings of it, about how it was structured, um, have off-the-record conversations with folks about sort of the -the behind-the-scenes thing, um, and talk to my mentors. And um, in July of 2015, I went away to Hawaii on my very first vacation ever in life. Um, and I, I, I share with people that um, I have children. Mm-hmm. So I have a philosophy that if the children come with you, it is not a vacation. It is a trip. <laughs> uh, and so uh, the, the husband and I had been on many, many trips, but this was our first vacation that we had ever gone on without the kids. And I sat on the beach in Hawaii in July of 2015 and made the decision. And really, um, you know, there were a lot of reasons that I went through in my mind of why I should not run. Mm-hmm. Um, all of those reasons based in fear. And really what I came away with was understanding that the Democratic Party was really at a crossroads and that this was an opportunity for us to really remake and reimagine this party in new and creative ways uh, for the future. It was an opportunity for us to not just continue to build and strengthen an electoral machine, but really create in many respects not just a house, but a home for people who wanted to dedicate their time, talent, and treasure towards something greater than them, towards um, a party that was fighting for the values that we um, mutually believed in. And so after uh, all of that, uh, I, I decided on that beach in Hawaii in July of 2015 to uh, to throw my hat in the ring and to, and to run to be the next chair of the California Democratic Party. So we're going to get in in a moment to how you actually built that campaign and talk a little bit about concretely how you built the whip system. But one of the things that struck me, two things that struck me when looking at your platform, and I encourage my listeners to go to KimberlyLS.com and look at the platform. There's a number of steps that Kimberly and her team have proposed in changing the party. And two things struck me. One of the things that you just mentioned about rapid change and things that were going through in terms of politics and the things you actually raised as questions, why can't I do this and why couldn't the party chair do do this? You guys recognize that, in fact, in the organizing landscape, particularly because of the last election, there are all sorts of new components, particularly uh, I noted, noted our revolution as a Bernie Sanders surrogate. I particularly uh, focused on that, but there's lots of different organizing elements out there that are sort of outside the traditional party structures. And one of the things that you say very clearly is how does, how do we, meaning we, the state parties actually bring those efforts, those organizing efforts into what we do and interact with them? Is that true? Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that was sort of a, um, a slogan along the campaign trail 
was that um, I was going to be that candidate that would facilitate difficult conversations and tell hard truths. And one of the hard truths that I told was that one of the reasons why so many organizing organizations and initiatives sprung up after November 8th, uh, like Our Revolution, like Indivisible, like Swing Left, like Brand New Congress, was because of a failure on the part of the state party to have that kind of operation internally for people who wanted to plug in and organize and volunteer in that way. And so instead of us now sort of, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking and taking a defensive posture to those organizations and saying sort of, hey, who do you think you are? You're doing our job. Instead of doing that, um, rolling out the red carpet, welcoming those organizations in to be a part of a collective team effort to advance our collective um, goals. And um, instead of sort of, you know, being a sole pilot, if you will, on a 767, acting instead as sort of air traffic control, right. bringing in and aligning the activities of those other organizations. And I think that was a brilliant observation in terms of a step that needed to be done because it wasn't just the state parties, but it was all the way up to the national party, to the DNC. And frankly, it's true about, I come out of the labor movement, and it's true also about unions. There, You have unions that have established structures, and yet they're not paying attention to the non-labor, meaning non-organized labor, organizing that's going on among domestic workers, among taxi workers. And so they've had to, and it hasn't really worked all that well. Well, there's a lot of work to be done in that area. But your point is that established institutions, if they want to survive in this environment, have to adapt to the kind of organizing that people are doing in some way out of necessity. Absolutely. And quite frankly, um, it's just it's just a smart thing and the right thing to do. Right. right? I mean, I think, again, this goes back to. um, Back to facilitating those difficult conversations and telling hard truths. And I will tell you, it, it, it made me a lot of friends, but it also made me a lot of enemies as well. Which, hey, it's you know, politics. It's, it's, it's politics. Like, <laughs> and, well, and quite honestly, the thing, the other thing that I said was, it's a good thing I'm not in this to make friends, right? Um, <laughs> I have a lot of friends, and I don't need to have to remember any more birthdays. But, I, I can't um, remember which president's... <laughs> I, I, can't re, I can't remember which politician or president said this, but someone said, if you want a friend, buy a dog. Um, you know, in Washington, they were referring to it. it. may have been Truman or someone. I don't remember who it was. But, uh, yes, yeah. poli- politics is rough. Uh, well, yeah, but, but so, the, you know, the hard truth was, was this. It was like, who, who, you know, one of the things that I talked about was growing up as, as that military kid, you know, moving all around. It was, it was reassuring to me that we always had what we called home base. Home base was Chattanooga, Tennessee. Um, it's where I was born. It's where all of my um, both maternal and paternal uh, families were at. We would always come back to Tennessee for vacations, for holidays. And um, I grew up with uh, my mom's side, a very, you know, traditional, old-school, Southern Baptist kind of grandma 
who was the matriarch of our family. Um, but they, she was very poor, very poor. They lived in the ghetto. They lived in the, in the projects in Tennessee. Uh, but because my dad was an officer, it afforded us a middle-class lifestyle. So I was able to sort of go back and forth even in between those worlds. And I remember my grandmother teaching me at a very early age what it meant to be a Democrat. Mm. Um, and she said, Democrats are the ones who care about poor people. She said, Democrats are the ones who care about working folks who have to get up every morning and go punch a clock. Um, and Democrats are the ones who are in the soup kitchens on the weekends, making sure that the homeless are fed. And so that's what I grew up sort of understanding a Democrat to be. And one of the hard truths that I talked about was um, feeling, having a deep-seated feeling and, and meeting so many other people who share that feeling that the Democratic Party as an institution and some of our leaders at the highest levels had seemingly forgotten what it meant to be a Democrat and had lost their way and had forgotten that the Democratic Party was the party of the poor, was the party of the working class, was the party of the voiceless and the downtrodden. And so for me, this was, um, this was also about redefining what it meant to be a Democrat by getting us back to basics, getting us back to being that party of the people that was grounded and rooted in doing the work of the people. And so um, I talked about that. I talked about that uh, in the context of, you know, holding our elected officials accountable and, and calling the question, not being afraid to call the question. Yeah. Um, I think that's so, it, yeah, like <laughs> that's so well said. And, you know, it, it really touches on the feelings of so many people that I ran into in the course of the presidential campaign. Again, as I was a surrogate for Bernie Sanders, I ran into hundreds if not thousands of people who said that they were fed up with the Democratic Party and you had to work on them to say, okay, we need to fight to change the Democratic Party. And there's still this debate going on, but you couldn't in your heart, in my heart, I couldn't blame them for feeling that way because the party, as you point out, had lost its way. Certain segments of the party for all sorts of reasons for because of the corruption of money, um, the influence of lobbyists, the fact that too many people got in to politics to further their own agenda and their own careers and didn't see it as a mission. But it was hard not to feel sympathetic to those people in the way they felt about the party. Yeah, and I think, too, again, for me, and, and, and one of the reasons why I got into this race, because I also decided on that beach back in July of 2015 that I was going to accept the outcome, whether I won or lost. And I recognized in that moment when I was making the decision to run that win or lose, um, the run itself, and more importantly, the conversations that we would spark along the campaign trail were equally important um, as, as the outcome itself. Right. And so being that person that would call the question, that would put it on the table, that was not going to back down or shy away from asking questions that would, you know, quote-unquote, ruffle feathers or rock the boat. Uh, that, you know, those were the things that were coming back at me. Hey, Kimberly, you should be careful because you're, you're really ruffling feathers and rocking the boat and you're making some of the elected officials uncomfortable with some of the rhetoric that you're, that you're using. But um, really calling the question of saying, hey, can we take a collective pause? Can we just think back to November 8th and what happened? And more importantly, remind ourselves that we didn't just start losing in 2016. Mm. 
but this party has been losing for a for decade. A long time. For a decade, we, actually. We lost in, in decades, yeah. in 16, in 14, in 12, in 10. We didn't just lose the White House. We lost the Senate. We lost Congress. We lost over 1,000 legislative seats. We've lost governorship. We've yep. lost state legislatures. What are we doing? Who are we as a party? More importantly, though, where do we want to go from here? And so, really, it was an opportunity for us to have that conversation and use this as an opportunity um, to, um, to really be creative and thoughtful and, and imagine what this party could be, not just for today and the next election cycle, but for the future. And that really was, you know, the, the moment that I thought we were in and the opportunity that we had, and, and that necessarily meant having those difficult conversations with folks. I'll be back with my conversation with Kimberly Ellis in just a few seconds. I do want to urge you to go to voteforkimberly.com to find out what's been happening with the campaign and the challenge. That's the way you can keep track of the challenge from now until it's resolved and also show your support. And now back to my conversation with Kimberly. And now we're going to judge about whether you're an honest political person. And I'm going to ask you this question. Very quick answer. You got to admit that over this time of this whole campaign, didn't your mind go back to that beautiful beach in Hawaii and say, oh, boy, I wish I was back on that beach and maybe I should have made a different decision. Come on, at least once or twice, right? Oh, absolutely, many times. And I'll tell you, hey, it's, it, I'm a human, yeah, just like right. anybody else. And yeah. I will tell you, there were many times along the campaign trail, and to be perfectly honest, there were times even since uh, May 20th yeah. um, that had, had given me pause because of the vitriol yeah. and yeah. The, um, the negativity that has been directed at me. Was it just it's for hard. running? Yeah, it's horrible. Just for running. I mean, just yeah. quickly, if I can just tell a really quick yes, story. Yes, please. So I, I announced in August of 2015, um, late of August 2015, we sort of formally announced that I was running. Three weeks later, I was summoned to come down to L.A. by two black women. And um, one of my friends was friends with these women. I was not. Um, and she helped to sort of um, arrange a luncheon. And she said, listen, let me tell you going in, these two black women who happen to be sisters in L.A. County, they are going to support your opponent. They've known him for years, but you really need to go down there and meet with them and talk to them. They need to get to know you. You know, for starters, they're black, you're black. You kind of have to do that black thing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they're very prominent in the black community and in L.A. politics. And so hopefully they won't hate you, you know, afterwards. So we go down to this meeting. We get on a 6 a.m. flight out of Oakland, fly down to L.A. for lunch. And I thought, okay, well, when these ladies get to know me, I'm sure that, you know, they, you know, they will like me as a person. You know, I'm a very likable person. And maybe even they'll end up supporting me, you know, sisters, right, in the name of sisterhood, I thought. And, and, and instead, that conversation turned into something like, uh, and the waiter came over and, and, and took our orders right after we sat down. And as soon as the waiter walked away, one of the women who I'd never seen before a day in my life leaned over to me and she said, who the hell do you think you are running for this? Wow. First words out of her mouth. She said, you are an infant when it comes to party politics. She said, um, if you decide to run for this, it will be political suicide, and no one will ever touch you again. She said, we have heard about your reputation for fundraising. We know you know how to raise money. She said, we would advise you go and offer that up to Eric, 
and you ask him if he will give you one of the vice chair seats. But as far as running to be the next chair of the California Democratic Party, politically speaking, you will be murdered, and we will personally take part in murdering you. Woo! And uh, and what was the entree then like? When uh, was that before yeah. the entree? I mean. <laughs> That was before. I was kind of like, yeah, check, please. I yeah, think right. my appetite is... But, but just to sort of say, that was from right out the gate. Right. right. That was three weeks after I announced, and there was a lot of that along the way. And there's been, there's been a lot of it, quite frankly, since the election of, like, you know, you have sour grapes, you um, are just mad, you're a sore loser. Why don't you show some grace and just get out and concede the, the, the race? But, you know, for me, this has always been... And I said this from the very beginning. This is not about me. This was never about me. It was never even about any of my opponents. This was always about this party. This was about the heart and soul of this party. This was about remaking this party in a bigger, better, bolder way. And it was about the people and the movement uh, behind this party. And so for me, this the challenge to the election um, is really not about who won or lost. This is about the truth. This is about, again, telling hard truths about where we are right now. I believe deeply that this party will not be able to move forward, not just in this race, but we won't get back to winning elections until we are able to take that long, hard look in the mirror and have an honest conversation about who we are, what we stand for, and what we're about right now, today, and then determine from that where we want to go from here. That's quite well said. And so let's, in fact, move to the actual campaign, because I think this is really important for my listeners to know about how you guys organize this and why this is a very serious challenge. And you have real, um, real evidence that this fraud happened, that this election was essentially stolen. And I want to start on a positive note, which is, you know, I've been around progressive politics for a long time. I'm probably uh, dating myself. But one of the things that has always struck me is that sometimes progressives just don't know the rules in the institutions they're trying to take over or they're trying to organize around. And they think that it's just going to be enough to make great statements and great uh, appeals to passion and to do the right thing. But one of the things you guys did, it struck me, was you really understood the mechanics of how to win this election. And it very much started out with sweeping hundreds of seats, over 600 seats in those ADIM elections, which I talked about in the introduction to the podcast. But that gave you a base, in addition to the organizing you did, to actually come in with a very strong hand. So talk a little bit about you know, and in short, we don't want to go through every single detail, but what was the vision about how you set up the operation, how you appealed to people, how you won people over, how you set up a really sophisticated whip operation? Yeah. Well, first, what I would say is it actually started even before then. Mm -hmm. um, it started back in August of 2015 when we had our first kitchen cabinet meeting that um, had about 35 people from all over the state of California representing the nine major uh, geographic areas um, in, in, in the state. Were these activists and they were elected people? Describe, you don't have to necessarily give names unless you want to, but certainly who were they? 
Yeah, it was it was everybody, right? It was activists. It was um, uh, people who were uh, who worked in policy. Uh, it was uh, local elected officials. Uh, it was people who were both Bernie supporters and Hillary supporters. Um, it was people who um, had their finger on the pulse and were very plugged into their communities in the regions that they represented. And um, we brought everyone together because I really. Um, wanted to make sure that from the outset, this was a campaign that was a collaborative one that um, that gave everybody um, a seat at the table. Uh, and I wanted all of California to be represented, not just the major uh, population centers, but the entire uh, state, including the Central Valley, the rural counties, northern, true northern California. So we had about 35 people. And um, really sort of with butcher paper, right, and, and, and colored markers, went through exactly the structure of the party um, and determined very quickly that the only path to victory um, in this election would require us changing the actual electorate itself, the hmm. people who actually voted, hmm. and that we had the opportunity to do that. Um, so even before the ADEM elections in January of 2017, the first opportunity to change a third of the electorate was the Central Committee elections, mm -hmm. which were coming up in June of 2016. Um, so just a little less than um, a year away. And so um, what we did basically was we put into place a program to recruit, train, and run people in central committees all across the state of California. How many central committees yeah. are there? Describe a little bit the, yeah, so, la the, the, the lay of the land. Yeah. So California has 58 counties. Um, at the time, 54 of the counties had active central committees. Um, and actually a little less than, than 54. We actually had someone on our team, Martha Gomez, who actually helped to get a lot of the um, inactive central committees up and running. So we... Um, worked to get people, again, trained and uh, ready to run in the Central Committee elections, which took place in June of 2016. So that was the first part. We knew um, this basically was a, um, a campaign with, um, it was basically four coordinated campaigns in one. And that was the first campaign, uh, was to change the makeup of the central committees throughout the state of California. Mm -hmm. uh, so that happened in June of 2016. Um, shortly thereafter, we started uh, talking about the ADEM elections, which were happening uh, about six months later in January of 17. How many central committees did you actually win, and how many did you change or flip? Yeah, so we um, we were able to um, get people in uh, in many of them, such that we had at least a, a, a fifty percent um, um, stronghold, and in some of them, sixty percent. Mm -hmm. um, and so we, you know, we had a matrix that basically said sort of what the percentage was that we needed to have in in both of those two categories, if you will, in the Central Committee and in the ADEM category in order to offset uh, my opponent's sort of um, stronghold in the third bucket, which was the PLEOs, the party leaders and elected officials. 
Um, and so we were successful in, in hitting our numbers in all of the central committees um, in order to, to position us strongly in that particular category. Mm-hmm. Um, and so soon after we got our people sort of locked and loaded in that particular category, then we moved on to uh, sort of replicating that plan of recruiting, training, and getting people ready to run in the ADEM elections in January of 2017. And, you know, we had some phenomenal um, allies and people who were leading with that uh, effort, including Karen Bernal, uh, Katrina Bergstrom, uh, Hans Johnson, um, Taisha Brown, Tisa Rodriguez. I mean, there were so many people um, across the state who worked with um, our revolution, who worked with the nurses, who worked with um, other uh, allied organizations to recruit people um, to run on slate um, in basically all 80 of the assembly districts. And what we saw was a almost complete sweep uh, in, in almost all of the um, districts all across the state, yeah. which, again, positioned us very strongly uh, in terms of numbers going into going into convention. And so that left us with um, just then having to work on the final category uh, of delegates, the, the elected officials and the party leaders. And so just a couple of notes on that. People can go back and listen to the podcast I did with Karen Burnell, who was an amazing leader in California. She is, in fact, now the new chair of the Progressive Caucus in the Democratic Party. She was instrumental in that. And as Kimberly mentioned, many other people. And I actually, I was on the ground in San Luis Obispo when that election happened that weekend. And it was astonishing to me at, at two levels. One, first one was it was raining. And even though mm-hmm. you all were, were, did experience a lot of rain over the last, uh, I guess, number of months, back then that was still an unusual thing. And I think people are still learning how to use their umbrellas in California because it had been <laughs> so long. But here's the, all, all kidding aside, here's the greatest thing that I think you guys did. And I keep wanting to underscore the organizing you did, because I think this is important for people who are listening, who are fed up with the Democratic Party, that you need to at least try to do the organizing. And I understand if you don't win, then you want to make a decision, but at least make the effort to do that. Because one of the things that happened in the ADEM elections was, you know, a lot of it was filling a void where they weren't ready for this to happen. And in San Luis Obispo, Usually I went out there and I actually talked to some veterans who said, oh, usually 50 people show up for these kinds of elections. And over 700 people came up, came out for that election. I know that happened throughout the state. There was an incredible voter turnout. And why? Because you all did great organizing and you had slate discipline. In other words, in San Luis Obispo, I know in other places, you know, progressives organized and they agreed on the slate and everybody kind of went with that. So you didn't have other progressives taking away votes from people from the slate. Absolutely. And I think, again, to your point, underscoring the um, the um, the power of organizing and the um, the power of being willing to do the work. Right. To roll up your sleeves and do the work. And as a result, not only did our folks out-organize the party uh, apparatus. We out-organize the elected officials. We out-organize organized labor. Um, you know, these slates, our slates swept uh, yeah. all of those uh, slates that had historically 
historically um, just been dominant and, and quite honestly, been unchallenged um, in these elections for so long. And as a result, you know, to your point, what we saw was not just three and four and five times the amount of people, but ten times the amount of people who came out in the pouring rain. I mean, like, it wasn't just like raining for like an hour or a couple hours. It rained like the entire time. And people stood out there with their umbrellas and their galoshes, um, you know, and waited in line to vote. And I think that sort of highlighted um, the desire, the deep desire that people had to be a part of change and and the opportunity um, to really move the party forward in new and different and exciting and progressive ways. Now, you had to work on the elected officials and the plios, as they call them. And I guess the analogy, because people understand this from the national scene, is these are sort of superdelegates. In other words, they get a vote by virtue of being elected officials. They don't have to run for that position other than the fact that they're elected officials. So you had to work on them. And I assume, and you, you know, correct me if I'm really wrong about this, I assume that a lot of the establishment were going to vote for Bauman. Absolutely. Most of the, the, the majority of the establishment was, yep. was already and had been um, from, from very early on. Like the two African-American women who had lunch with you, for example, who, who told you, it, how dare you? <laughs> right. Uh, they, they weren't elected officials, but they were, you know, certainly, I think, symbolic of sort of the establishment and the, you know, sort of um, status quo position, which was they were going with the... Um, you know, with their guy. So you set up, let's now fast forward to the convention so we can actually get our listeners here to understand where the fraud happened. You come to the convention, you have a sophisticated whip operation, you've got everybody's phone numbers. I actually watched a group of, I think it was mainly nurses gathering together, making sure that everybody went to vote once the vote was called. And before the vote happened, um, or maybe I'll ask this question first, when you got to the convention, were you? Did you have a sense that you had the majority already, or did you feel like it was still in play and you had to do some work to secure some more votes? Yeah. Well, one of the one of the things that I think was so um, fascinating and wonderful about this campaign is that um, we ran a data driven campaign, and we also um, um, were committed to making sure that. Um, we were communicating with the delegates throughout the entire process. So one of the things that we did, we ID'd the entire field of delegates. Uh, we were in touch with, with every single delegate. So we knew which delegates were voting for us, which delegates were voting for um, my opponents, which delegates were undecided and were going to make their decision after the floor speeches, which delegates were not coming, which ones were sending part. Like, we had ID'd the entire field. We hit our win number um, uh, several weeks before convention. Wow. And so after, and those were hard yeses. So those weren't like maybe mm. leaning your way. Those were hard yeses. So once we hit our win number, we then, um, our whip operation went into, into place. And we had 157 whip captains representing uh, all 80 of the assembly districts yep. and the 54 central committees, 100, uh, 134. Um, and those whip captains um, were in touch with their um, their delegates from their districts. They knew when the delegates were getting into town, when their planes were landing, when their trains were coming in, when the carpools were pulling in, all their contact information. Uh, they The delegates knew when to check in. Um, by Friday, 98% of our voters had checked in. Wow. 
And you, 98%. And I want to underscore to people once again that w- coming to the convention, when you said you had your win number, you had the en- enough votes to win this election. We had enough votes to win this election. We also knew sort of where um, our uh, opponent, our, our, our primary opponent, was sitting in terms of his numbers as well. Um, we felt very confident that the, the, the gap between our win number and where he was sitting was impossible for him to overcome. It just simply, in terms of numbers. Um, it was impossible, mathematically almost impossible for him to, to close that gap. Um, and so and listen, so, for listeners who are wondering, how do you know um, what the opponent has? I mean, when you're doing the phone calling, when you're doing the organizing, you run up to someone like the two African-American women who you had lunch with, and you, you count them right away as votes for the other side. So you have a tally sheet on the organizing you've done, rating from one to five, presumably. You know where his vote is. We know exactly where it is. We have we have the full list of th- of the three thousand three hundred and nine people <laughs> and their names and how they're voting and where those votes are going. And and actually, we also uh, just went ahead and automatically awarded my opponent um, all of the um, pretty much all of the pleos, all of the elected officials, all of their delegates. Right. We just automatically awarded those. Um, and said, if we uh, actually are able to get some of those, that's icing on the cake. But we are just going to assume that he takes all of them. Uh, and so we knew, walking in, what our numbers were, what his numbers were, and knowing that, mathematically speaking, it was virtually impossible for him to make that up. Um, and so that's sort of, uh, you know, what we, how we walked into, into convention. And so, uh, to set the scene, as I, I've done in a previous podcast, I was standing in the back, and I, I tweeted this out. I said, if it was based on the enthusiasm and pink t-shirts that were in the hall, you were going to crush him, because the enthusiasm was amazing. The pink shirts that you had for your team just flooded the hall, and were clearly outnumbering Bauman's people if you just kind of eyeballed it, but it wasn't even close. So, people made their pitches, their nomination speeches, and then everybody flooded out. And then we were in the state, uh, the Sacramento Convention Center. I'm just trying to give people a visual picture of this. People then lined up all the way up the staircases, around staircases, all the way around, and they stood in, in line for potentially hours. And explain now, I'm a voter. I walk into the voting booth. What is the process for me to cast a vote? Yeah. Well, that's one of the things that um, that is really concerning to us was the actual process itself. Mm-hmm. Um, different from in years past, there were no requirements whatsoever to verify that you were who you said you were um, when it was time for you to pick up your credentials uh, and, uh, and then to go to vote. So, for example... Um, I could walk up to the registration um, line and say, um, my name is, uh, you know, Jonathan Pastini, right. and, um, and I'm here to, to pick up my, my credentials. Could you get away with, and, could you literally get away with a gender difference, or are you, uh, yeah, well, <laughs> that would be I'm stretching a little bit. Okay, example. let's say you're... Stretching you're, a little bit, but I could walk yeah, up yeah. and I could say my name is Nancy, Sally Smith, right. and I'm here to, per- right. to pick up my credential. Um, and then they would say, okay, Sally, I need you to sign here. Uh, and you would sign there, and then they would uh, hand you your credential, uh, and then you were in. So no requirement whatsoever uh, to show, not you know, um, IDs aside, um, to show my 
Facebook profile uh, uh, to to um, indicate that I was who I was, or a Costco card, mm-hmm. uh, or any kind of um, verification that I was who I said I was from the very beginning. Um, that it was different this year than in years past. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, for us, was, was the first red flag. And as the sort of um, Friday and Saturday wore on, um, it became clear to us that there were many um, irregularities um, and uh, inconsistencies that really raised many red flags for us. And I think on Saturday evening, um, when we had received the initial reports that with 60% of the vote, we were ahead, um, and then all of a sudden for the tide to turn, um, quickly, and then all of a sudden, you know, the final result that we were, we had lost by 62 votes. Right. Um, what I would say is that immediately, the immediate um, gut reaction was, there's something very wrong. This election has been stolen. Something is wrong. Based on the data that we had, the numbers that we had, the information we had, coupled with some of the reports that we had gotten about what had gone on on the floor uh, and also what had gone on in the room where the votes were being counted, we felt strongly that something was amiss. Uh, now, you know, remembering in that moment, there's so much information that's coming and so much, you know, that's going on, obviously it was impossible for us to know in that moment exactly what had happened or what had transpired. And what I would say is that today... Um, where we are is that, you know, based on having um, been able to gather information, eyewitness accounts, um, other um, kinds of evidence, um, having had the opportunity to review the ballot, um, we are very confident that what we have seen so far, which includes duplicate votes, which includes people who were not qualified uh, to be proxies, which includes disparate forms of signatures, which includes people who do, did not sign in uh, at various points throughout the process. Um, there are numerous um, irregularities and inconsistencies which fall far beyond the margin of error. Uh, and as a result, we have called for an independent third-party forensic audit uh, to be done uh, to validate and verify this vote. Um, we believe deeply that not only did we not lose by 62 votes, but that we won this election outright and pretty handedly. And instead of taking our word um, as um, granted, uh, uh, not an impartial party uh, to this to this situation, but to allow a third party, mutually agreed upon professional firm, come in, review the process, review all of the materials, not just the ballots, but all of the supporting materials, including the registration signing sheets, the um, payment forms, um, every stitch of information, and to uh, render a neutral uh, finding so that we can, um, once and for all, get to the truth of the matter, which is the only thing that I am seeking out of all of this. Mm-hmm. Not just for me, not just for my supporters, but for this party. We must be the party that believes in transparency, 
that believes in honesty and that believes in the truth. If we don't stand for truth, then what do we stand for? And as I understand it, Bauman has refused this idea of having a third-party independent audit. Am I correct about that? So we actually had been calling for uh, an independent audit for for a while. Um, We uh, have legal counsel that had been working with his legal counsel um, that had um, asked for this early uh, early this week. Uh, we were put off. Um, we um, they asked us for um, additional time, uh, not once but twice. Um, and finally, uh, we got an answer uh, on Friday, uh, which basically was um, no uh, to all of the requests that we made. Um, the first one being uh, for a third party uh, independent. Um, uh, forensic audit. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, the obvious question is, if Eric Bauman believes so much in his victory, what is he afraid of to have an independent audit? If he is so secure and that those votes happen legally and without fraud, then he should be very happy and proud to show his voting strength. Is that a fair comment? Well, I think even beyond that, I think that understanding and appreciating the um, fragile state that our Democratic Party is in with respect to having trust issues, right, coming off of the national election, mm-hmm. coming off of the brutal uh, presidential primary, uh, coming off of the, um, the DNC convention. Um, I think understanding that and appreciating that and the feelings that are on all sides, um, it, it would behoove all of us to want to instill trust um, in in the full delegation, and I think that for the sake of that, and for um, you know, in the spirit of wanting to move forward, you know, in unity or in harmony, um, we need to um, to validate the vote and to make sure everybody feels confident um, in in the outcome of this election. And I think that um, in order for whoever the chair is. To, um, to be um, validated and for everybody to sort of rally around, you know, uh, whoever, whoever it is and to move forward collectively, we need this. Our party needs this for closure so that we can move on. And so, yes, I think it, it behooves Eric, it behooves our party, it behooves all of us um, to get um, closure on this. And in order to get closure, um, we need to remove it out of the hands of both of the campaigns um, into the hands of a third-party uh, neutral uh, agent that can look at this objectively, assess all of the information, and give us a decision one way or the other. So now that they've refused this on Friday, as we now um, come to an end of our discussion and wrap this up, what are your options now? What are you pursuing now that he's refused to have the independent audit? What does the California Democratic Party provide for? Or what are your options outside the party to force them for this to, to do this audit? Well, there is an internal uh, process uh, that uh, this our complaint goes to um, to um, to review, uh, and so we have submitted a, a formal challenge um, to to that body, uh, and we will um, again uh, call on Eric and the CDP to uh, to push for uh, an audit, and we are going to continue that. Um, until until we get a final uh, determination uh, from the internal body. And what I will say is that we have 
um, uh, reserved our right to continue to pursue this. Mm-hmm. Um, should we not get resolved um, internally, uh, we have reserved our right to, to continue um, outside uh, in other venues. Including a legal challenge. And the last question is: To your point, this is bigger than Eric Bauman, and it goes to the frustration that people have about the party. And you know, just looking at California and the importance of California nationally, the National Democratic Party should want to have this resolved fairly, because, as you point out on the website, there are seven seats, or California is very critical in terms of taking back the House, uh, national politics. You want to have people enthusiastic about the party and believing that the party is a place that is about honesty, truthfulness, and standing up for people, and not a party that is about the fraud, about insiders, about the Debbie Wasserman Schultz way of doing business at the national party level. You have to have a party that people believe in and trust. Absolutely. And uh, again, just to sort of harken back to some of the things that I that I talked about on the campaign trail, you know, we ask so much of our of our Democratic uh, voters and loyalists and supporters. And um, if, if we want people to fight for the Democratic Party, then we have to give them a Democratic Party worth fighting for. Uh, and in my mind and in the minds of, of, of my of, of the supporters of this campaign and of democracy, um, that means having a party that is truthful. That means having a party that is transparent. That means having a party that doesn't just talk about these values, but actually lives these values in everything that they do. And so the quicker we can get this resolved, the quicker we can get to uh, having a third-party um, um, forensic audit take place, the quicker we can move beyond this and start uh, focusing on 2018 and taking back as many of those uh, congressional seats that are held by Republicans here in California so we can add to the national pity so that we can try to take back Congress in 2018 and put the brakes on this runaway train known as um, Trump. And that'll do it for this week's podcast. As you probably noticed, if you're a regular listener, I decided not to have a Robber Baron segment just because of the long conversation I had with Kimberly and to just have mercy on your listening time. Uh, I do want to thank Kimberly Ellis for spending a lot of time with me. It was a pleasure. Uh, please again go to voteforkimberly.com to keep track of this important issue. The audio editor again for the podcast is David Hebden. Please do subscribe to the podcast, and if you can become a financial supporter to help us travel, bring this important news about the progressive movement, about the way in which we're changing politics, please do that. You can do all that at workinglife.org and click on the podcast tab and look forward to having you back next week. Mm